This is Coach Lee, and you're listening to The Door Report. On today's episode of The Door Report, powered by Alaco Finewood Floors, we're joined by former Vanderbilt basketball assistant coach Ron Bargatze. We get his take on year three under Coach Stackhouse. He helps us take another trip down memory lane back to the 60s and 70s, even on West End. Shane Foster's number 32 going up in the rafters of Memorial Gym and the landscape of SEC basketball as conference play approaches. Also, we recap Vandy's games against Hawaii and BYU in the Diamond Head Classic, despite their championship versus Stanford being postponed. But also, we give our thoughts on Ken Seals' decision to return to Vandy next season and the multitude of headlines, ironically, coming out of Vanderbilt Stadium with Tennessee practicing at Dudley Field. We've got all that and much more coming right up on the Door Report. Powered by Alaco Fine Wood Floors. Let's ride. At Vanderbilt, it's Tim Corbin in the Vandy Boys, Jerry Stackhouse on the hardwood, and Clark Lee on the gridiron. Nashville, it's time to sit back, relax, grab a cold one, and enjoy the show. The Music City is our state, and West End is where we rock. You're listening to The Door Report, the premier Vanderbilt podcast for fans who bleed black and gold. Commodore Nation, anchor down. Welcome into the Door Report. It is episode 134. It is December 28th, 2021. We are powered by Alaco Finewood Floors. Will, we're back. I hope you had a Merry Christmas and uh, we've got New Year's coming up. We're about a few days away from that. I got a big New Year's Eve weekend coming up. How about Christmas being on a Saturday and New Year's Eve being, being on a Saturday, New, New Year's Day on a Saturday? It's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, I don't like it at all, Billy. That, that's, <laughs> I, I mean, this is this is absolute crap. But th- this is garbage. I'm just going to say it in the intro here. This whole Saturday and Saturday thing, it has to change. I hate it. <laughs> I don't I don't get so I'm tied to the stock market with what I do. So if the stock market's open, I work. New Year's Eve is a completely normal, completely normal stock market day. And then all I got off was the was Christmas Eve or the day before Christmas. So Ooh, I do not like it, Billy. I'm not a fan of it. And, yeah. and I'm getting shafted. So hey, I just uh, want to throw that out there, everybody. That's I thought I would have some more days off. So that's why the recruiting article that I started out on has, has been a little bit slower because it has been a lot busier than I expected. Yeah. Not not as many days off as everyone else out there. Yeah. And door door report took it took about a week off. So we, we don't we don't usually do that. But we did kind of sneak a week off there for Christmas. But we're back here. And uh, again, I hope you all had a Merry Christmas. But Will, we've got a lot to talk about. Vanderbilt, they technically won the Diamond Head Classic, kind of. That's what we have here in the script. Stanford, I mean, it feels good. It feels good. Vanderbilt, uh, they're eight and four. That's a win in the win column. Uh, we're still trying to figure out if the trophy is on West End. Maybe we'll uh, we'll, we'll scrounge that up somewhere. But uh, we do have a few more notes to touch on. Peyton Daniels actually announced where he'll transfer. Uh, we'll, we'll give you guys that information. Ken Seals uh, will return. So kind of uh, shockingly, we both thought uh, that would go the other direction. But Ken Seals will return. And we will give you our New Year's resolutions Vandy style. So we'll kind of uh, end the episode that way. But, uh, but Will, we've got a lot to get to 
uh, but we're at 3,000. That, 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 feels, that feels pretty good on Twitter. I think, Billy, when I joined, and I, this is a lot moment of coincidence. This is not because of me. You, you've done a lot of the work <laughs> here and, and everybody else, Braden, Jacob, Jalen, uh, Brian, Jackson, mm-hmm. formerly now working within the Beast there at Vanderbilt. Congratulations <laughs> to him. Um, it, it, it's, been, it's been fun. It's been great. I think when I joined, it was around like 700 followers or yeah, somewhere around crazy. there. So watching, watching it grow over the last year and a half has been pretty fun. So thank you to everybody that follows us. And yes. 3K means a lot. So no doubt. really, me and Billy put in a lot of time on this. So this is, uh, it's, it's nice to see at least a few people on Twitter appreciate it. Yeah. I think <laughs> so, when, we got, we, when we got to 2,000, we threw a big party. 3,000, it's like, hey, we, we got there a little bit quicker. So Yeah, uh, I think 3, it was uh, during Vanderbilt's run to the national title there that we reached it was, yeah. so yeah. It, it was this exponential growth Billy. we just got to keep it going yep mr business will byron <laughs> we, we, we got the updates there already but well let's before we get to uh, all the other stuff we got to talk about don't forget to follow us on twitter at door underscore report and instagram door dot report like us on facebook subscribe to our youtube channel our podcast is available on anchor itunes spotify and google Podcasts. and while you're at it give our podcast five stars and a review on itunes all right let's get to the breaking news no matter what style you're going for, you can trust your flooring job to a Laco Fine Wood Floors. Take a walk through the woods in your home every day. Get your flooring job started today by calling 615-356-0303. A Laco Fine Wood Floors. Craftsmanship you can stand on. All right, well, we're going to be talking a lot of basketball, uh, and you know, most of it's going to be about this year's team, Coach Stackhouse and the boys, of course, ha- how they fared in Hawaii. But real quick, let's touch on Darius Garland and, and the season that kid is having up in Cleveland. He's averaging 20 points a game. That leads the team, seven assists per game, and, and they have turned into a really fun team to watch alongside Colin Sexton. They got guys like Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, guys down low that have played well. So – well, I'd say we're Cavs fans right now. I mean, I don't, I don't want to go as far as we're a Cavs podcast now, but it's been pretty cool to, to see Garland up there in Cleveland. And, and he, I'd, I'd, I'd be willing to bet he, 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 would be, he will be on the all-star team um, in the Eastern Conference. And, you know, not saying he's going to be a starter, but I'd be very surprised if he isn't uh, an all-star there on the Eastern Conference side. And now we got Luke Cornett in Cleveland as well. So we got a couple of Vandy boys there. Uh, in Cleveland, but will it's, I, I, you know, I think we expected this from Garland, but, but uh, to this, to this degree, this is, this has been pretty fun to watch. It's taken Garland a second to get going in the NBA. I think his first, first season was probably a little bit of a disappointment uh, to a lot of Cavaliers fans, but he was coming off that injury. So he was coming mm-hmm. off missing, missing time there. But yeah, this season, I think actually I just read today's going into the COVID COVID oh, list no. or reserve list or whatever. So that's always fun. But yeah, in, in his first couple seasons there, uh, he's going in. This is year three for him alongside Colin Sexton. You mentioned mm-hmm. Luke Cornett. Yeah. I'm still partial to the Celtics, Billy, because they do have Neesmith. And that Cornette, can be Cornette's the state. That can, be the, that, that can be the state of Tennessee's team there because they have Aaron <laughs> Neesmith and they have Grant Williams. I know how you feel about Grant uh-huh. Williams, but that, that, that can unite the state of Tennessee and we're going to get into the <laughs> – divisions that have been there but yeah he's shooting 44 percent from three as the Cavs there I think they're fifth in the Eastern Conference Mm -hmm. but um, every every single stat across the board 
has gone up and it just kind of makes you sad sitting there and watching and seeing what he's able to do at the in the NBA at the professional level and thinking what could have been what could have been with right. him and Smith and Simi like, Shatu all like healthy all at every once. podcast I, I swear we it, it's what broke that. me it's what broke me as a fan <laughs> of sports I, I just you. knew I was not destined to have nice things whenever but, Darius Garland got were, injured you were at that game and you got your Roomba so yeah, I got my Roomba that I won on their Christmas 12 days of Christmas or whatever giveaway. And so every time I run that stupid Roomba, I think about Darius Garland uh, <laughs> injuring his knee and being out for the season. Well, so it's well, a Coach constant Dean, reminder of pain. Yeah. Coach Bargatze actually touched on Garland. So we'll uh, Coach Ron Bargatze. I forgot to mention him up, up top, but uh, he will join us a little bit later, kind of diving deep into Vanderbilt basketball and the state of, of, of where they're at right now and, and he took us down memory lane again, so that, that was fun. We'll get to that a little bit later, but but yeah, Will, I, I'd be surprised. You think he's going to be an all star? I, I would, I'd be willing to bet. I mean, he's on the COVID list apparently. What now. is it? It's fan voting now with the NBA's yeah. fan voting, so it's it's always up in the air whether or not the best players or the most popular players become all stars. So I, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I don't know how I like that. I don't know if I like the the fans uh, I hate being it. able I hate to it. vote, uh, but it is what it is. That's kind of part of what the NBA is doing now. Uh, but, yeah, Darius Garland, we'll continue to keep track of him and, and hopefully he gets off that list, that, that COVID list, and, and, you know, who knows if he's symptomatic or not. But I read that. I read that on the bottom of the ESPN ticker. So I'm 100% sure I read it on the bottom of the ESPN ticker. I'm not 100% sure the context of it or anything yeah. going on. So that was just something random I saw about three minutes before we recorded. Trusty source that the ticker never lies. Oh, hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully Garland is, is back is back and ready to go soon. But uh, the Cavs, they are, they are the team to watch right now. They're fifth in the Eastern Conference. So uh, we will keep track of dg but will let's uh let's roll on here with with more hoops talk from this season and stanford uh stanford uh it's it's the irony is great uh we, we were getting set for the nerd bowl on christmas night between stanford and vandy um but it didn't happen and, and stanford has so, something about championships and vanderbilt and stanford just yeah. leads to controversy surrounding those something it's, about it it's crazy because vanderbilt played stanford in in all three major sports this season they played them with football of course they lost there they beat them in baseball and they they had another chance to uh to kind of uh win that series uh, per se this season but of course stanford had some issues and will the COVID issues across America are ramping up, not only just in college basketball. We'll touch on some of those a little bit later. But, Will, before the Stanford uh, game didn't happen, was canceled, this team looked dialed in. I mean, they look, they were playing some really good basketball. I know they played Hawaii, who is not a very good team at all, and they were losing. Uh, they lost, uh, I think, three or four of their, their big-time players before that game. But I don't care what anybody says, Will. It's not easy flying all the way down to Hawaii and playing the way they did. And, you know – there, there were some guys that stepped up. I know you're going to talk about Rodney Chapman, but um, I'm not saying this team, you know, I'm not saying this team's going to go out and win seven, eight games in the SEC without Liam Robbins. But I think we learned a lot of the fibers of this team without Liam Robbins. And, and you know, Rodney Chapman was a big part, but it seemed like Chapman kind of lit a spark under these guys and they started playing better. And, and you know, Chapman, Chapman can shoot the ball a little bit. Will he, he, he knocked down a couple big threes that I don't know if we expected, but if he's shooting the ball, Man, this is they're going to start looking like a different team. Yeah, and and you say Chapman, this is where the entire impact Chapman had on the game had not is not going to show up in the box score no. because everything that we said about Chapman going into this game, 
Um, I think he combined, he combined to score seven points between the two games in the Hawaii-BYU game. He's getting back to the flow of things. But what Chapman does is he lets Pippen pass the ball off and not be the primary ball handler mm-hmm. all the time. And that has opened up this offense just a little bit to allow Vanderbilt to compete and score enough points to compete with a team like BYU. And fortunately, Pippen there at the end just decided to take over as the SEC preseason uh, player was, of the year. But this BYU team, I just want to... Uh, it's BYU, that's, so that's I think good. that that's it's not it's team. not getting as much credit as it otherwise would. But this BYU team was ranked number twenty seven in the Ken Palm rankings. Yeah. Prior to this, Vanderbilt did not even have a win against a team in the Ken Palm rankings inside the top one thirty. Texas State was the highest win they had at number one thirty four, wow. much less the top thirty. So BYU winning that game proves that Vanderbilt can win games against quality tournament teams. Now, can they do it consistently? Can they do it without Scottie Pippen making some exceptional plays at the end of the game and and basically playing Superman ball at the end? That's the question. And so Liam Robbins, are we going to see him back? I don't know. You see the impact that just bringing Chapman back into this lineup and kind of seeing a more natural rotation and allowing Pippen to kind of rest off the ball, that definitely helped this team. But Robbins coming back is going to be the difference in whether they're going to actually be able to win and string wins together in the SEC. It is, no doubt about it. And and Will, Quentin Melora Brown also has has slowly improved. I mean, he's played some good basketball. Now, Mm -hmm. he hasn't you know, been dropping 20 points a game, but his little eight, 10, 12 points a game has, has made a difference. And so if he can kind of hold that lane, hold down the front there down low until Robbins gets back, I think this team, uh, they're going to look a lot different. They're slowly changing. You know, they got Chapman back. I think that notches it up. That's another notch uh, up, I-, I think, for them. But then they get Robbins back maybe a little bit later. We, who knows when? Uh, but, but this team's slowly kind of rounding out into form. And will this break, This break between not playing Stanford and then starting SEC play against Arkansas on January 4th, how much could that help? So this team's going to be rested, and they're going to be ready to go. So I'll be interested to see how they play down there in in Fayetteville. But, Will, I want to get to kind of how the SEC looks right now. And and I know this is going to fluctuate a lot during SEC play. It's going to look a lot different uh, once conference play starts. But right now, record-wise, Vandy, they're still on that bottom tier in the SEC. Uh, they're in front of only Mizzou and Georgia. Uh, they have the same record as Ole Miss right now at 8-4. and four. Uh, I don't think, you know, I think Vanderbilt's realistically back into that larger tier in the middle, I think, uh, just with the eye test. Now, they, you know, that loss to VCU really hurt them. Uh, but, Will, they're still in that bottom four. What do you think that says about them right now? I, I, you know, they're obviously going to get out of that, I think. And I think Georgia and Mizzou and Ole Miss are teams that they can and should beat. Uh, but looking at how the SEC looks right now, um, you know, Vanderbilt's got to get out of that bottom four right now. Uh, record-wise, they're not. But I think once you get into SEC play, uh, teams will start showing really who they are and, and show that they're beatable. So I think Vanderbilt will get back into that middle tier. How far up, Will? That's going to be the question. Um, and they start on the road against Arkansas, who Arkansas is always a tough challenge. They're really good again this year. Um, but will I can't wait to see what this team does in SEC play and how 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 much they continue to improve because I'll I'll admit will that they looked like a very different team not only against Hawaii but also against BYU BYU a top thirty team in Ken Palm they were just barely outside of that top twenty five in the country um, so and that was a game will going into BYU I was excited to see how they perform and they battled that was. That was the first time all season, Will, that I looked at this team and said they're playing with some dog. They're playing with some guts, and and they're going out there and just playing the game. You know, they're they're playing they're playing the game. They're not playing tight. 
and they went out there and and showed what they were about. So the BYU game was impressive. Um, and, and I think that turned some heads and people were excited to see the Stanford game. Uh, but will I, I look at where they are in the SEC right now? I don't think it plays. I don't think it, it says a whole lot, uh, but I still think this t- that tells me that this team still has a ways to go of kind of getting back into that middle pack of the SEC. Yeah, right now, and I know this is early, and it's a lot of out-of-conference play, and there's a lot to be determined, but I always like to look at Ken Palm because that's what you're going to hear. Mm-hmm. More and more, you've seen the shift from RPI, BPI, NCAA. It, yeah. Everybody's Ken Palm because it's the most it's the best way to evaluate where teams are at because it takes into account strength of schedule and everything. efficiency and everything. But right now, Vanderbilt's at 10th in the SEC in the Ken Palm rankings. So that would t- get them outside of that first four. So outside of that first round of games, it's right where we said would be a huge step forward. So we're sitting about where we thought we would be. Granted, mm-hmm. I think there's probably one loss in there somewhere. We thought maybe nine and three at this point, but eight and right. four is not awful. Um, you're going into SEC play with some rest. You've got some momentum going. Um, you're basically healthy outside of Robbins. Man had a knee issue. I don't think we've we've gotten much of an update on that. Yeah, he but got South hurt. Carolina, actually, he got hurt in warmups before their game against uh, Hawaii. So. Uh, if that's yeah, not on that, brand, I don't know what is. There we go. Perfect. But that, that's what I was going to get to is right now what Vanderbilt hasn't done is below them. They have Georgia, who's clearly the worst team, I think, in the SEC yeah. is Georgia. It's not really close. Then you have Missouri, who's right there with them. And then Ole Miss and South Carolina. The big ones are going to be taking care of business. You have to win against Missouri and Georgia both get both times and you have to beat South Carolina and Ole Miss. If you want to be outside of that bottom four, you have to take care of business against the clear bottom four teams in this conference, because I think there's a pretty clear cutoff uh, right above Vanderbilt or below Vanderbilt. And right now they're kind of in between of Ole Miss, Missouri, Georgia, South Carolina, and then are South Carolina and Vandy more towards the middle, or are they both grouped down towards the bottom? And that's what we're going to learn early, especially with Arkansas, who truly is probably about the seventh, eighth team in the conference. So that's going to be a good judge of is Vanderbilt in the middle of the pack? And what I think the Robins and QMB has been playing so well, Quint Moore Brown, I tweeted that out, but he had nine boards against Hawaii, 10 rebounds against BYU. He's crafty. But, and he scored and he scored decently well. He scored enough at that center position. But yeah. where this team is going to struggle, and you see it, their starting five or their best five or six can compete with anyone. They don't have any any depth at all at that center position without Robbins. That's the big thing. QMB can't play all game. Taron Frank is not a five. He's a four. He's six foot eight. Jermaine Mann is six foot six. He's certainly not a five. And he's that third guy rotating in at the five position. Miles Studi is more of a three. Honestly, Taron Frank's really not even much of a four, he's, even though he's, he's six foot eight. He's almost they, more of a three, yeah. They do not have depth at the big man position. And that is where Robbins is going to be missed, especially, and we haven't even seen this happen yet, but God forbid Quentin Miller Brown gets in foul trouble. Because without him against some of these more athletic and bigger SEC teams, if he's out of the game for an extended period of the time, this team is going to struggle to rebound and struggle to stop teams on the inside. And defense has been what has won them games early in the season, what is going to allow them to compete in games, um, especially early in SEC play before Robbins hopefully is able to come back. Well, speaking of bigs at Vandy, did you see Dylan DeSue's dunk that he had? Oh, yeah. at, God, that, that's, that's kind of some, that some salt in the wound there. But, I mean, you know, that's what they're missing. And we talked about missing DeSue and, and kind of that duo that we miss of him and Pippen. But, man, they, they, they could use that type of athletic four uh, but DeSue, I mean, he could even play some of the five at times. So that I, I'm with you, Will. That, that's and at some going. point, too, Jordan Wright has to get out of a shooting slump. He's he shot does. really, he's shot poorly for five, six games in a row, and he's kind of padded his stats. 
a little bit towards the end of games, but man, one for seven from the field against Hawaii. Thankfully they won. And then you're 0 for five from three, five of 14 overall against yeah, BYU. They were lucky been, to win those games, but man, it's, it's been a struggle for him after starting has. off the year looking really good. Yeah. It's been the first halves for him too, Will. And, you know, you talked mm-hmm. about him kind of getting some garbage time and it's late in the second half of games. Uh, but Jordan Wright's really going to have to step it up. And, 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 you know, so are a lot of the other guys, you know, I mean, Trey Thomas is going to have to shoot the ball better. He shot the ball very well at times in Hawaii. Um, and, and as much as we talked about him and, you know, kind of debating back and forth about whether or not he should be seeing this much time on the floor. Well, I, I think we learned that he's on the floor for one reason, and that's to shoot the boss, the basketball. Exactly. It, I mean, and, and, and it's not like he's playing dramatic minutes. Like he, you know, and, and I think he, you, there was a very good argument that he was playing a little bit too much, but I mean, that kid, when he's on the floor, I'm not saying he's a John Jenkins type, but you know, when he gets open, he's, he's not afraid to shoot it. So I think Trey Thomas being on the floor is kind of that, that's that, that seat, that sneak attack, that secret weapon that, you know, I think teams know about, but when he's on the floor, he's kind of hard to find and he, he's, he slips through the cracks a little bit. So um, I think, you know, the Trey Thomas is, is, I don't think his minutes are going to decrease um, it, just simply because of his shooting. And, you know, we talk about big man depth. I don't know. I'm not sure this team has a lot of shooting depth. Will I mean, we, we talked about miles Studi knocking down some shots, but who's that other shooter besides Pippen and Studi? I mean, you know, you've seen Frank knock down a few shots, but, you know, that third shooter, you need multiple guys that can shoot the ball. And so that's why I think Trey Thomas has seen the floor. But, Will, before we get to some of these other notes, we talked about the lineups. And we tweeted out a few days ago, I think it was during the BYU game, I think. This might have been during Hawaii. But what, do, what for, to Vanderbilt fans, what do you think about the rotations that Stack has? And, you know, we got some mixed reviews. We had some people that didn't like it. We had some people with some pretty detailed answers. But um, for me, Will, it's it's I, I think he's still trying to find just – who, who's who's going to be that sixth, seventh, eighth guy that, that he can rely on. Um, and, you know, we talked about, I think Vanderbilt has five or six guys that, that, that fans can be confident that, Hey, we're going to be fine when they're on the floor. But when Frank steps in, when Thomas steps in, when Dorsey, who, who actually started, I think against Hawaii uh, and mm-hmm. BYU, I think maybe, uh, but will it, it's just kind of finding that rotation. And, and, you know, as much as we pick at, at, at the way Stackhouse is kind of ordering those, I think he, he himself would tell you that, Hey, look, I'm trying to find those three, four guys that that work in here and be reliable. Yeah, and I think it was Gabe Dorsey. Miles Studi started over him in the BYU game, but he started the Austin yes. P and the Hawaii game. Right. So Gabe yeah. Dorsey hasn't really gotten the shot going. The one guy that I noticed specifically, his minutes decreased. Tyron and then in the BYU, in the, no, not who I was going to say, actually. That's another guy. But uh, in the BYU game, you saw his, he started for the first time after he'd kind of been put in the doghouse, it looked like. His minutes had decreased, and that's Miles Studi. And he was the X factor. He is why they won. And I know why, and I, I say I know. I don't know. This is me speculating. I can see possibly why Studi was not out there, and it could be disciplinary. It could be all right. sorts of things. But he's a step slow on defense and he gets beat. And that, that, that is something that Stackhouse seems to be, even though he's an NBA style offensive guy, if you're a step slow and flat footed on defense, that seems to be the yank Mm -hmm. Um, for whatever reason, even with Trey Thomas, who's not flat footed, but he can't guard anybody because he's too small. He's okay with shifting that miles Studi has to play. He has to play starters minutes. He is the only guy on this team at the note that has consistently hit shots. 
the game after game after game. He hasn't consistently gotten shots, um, but when he shot them, he's made them consistently shooting 41% from three. Um, the only other guy shooting better than him is Shane Dizoni, a guy that I really want to see get more minutes at that two guard position where Trey Thomas is right now. Um, Shane Dizoni's only shooting about one three per game, but he's shooting 57.5% uh, from the three point yeah. line this season. Trey Thomas, I know on this team, when I say Trey Thomas is playing too many minutes, he still has to be on the court because this team has no scoring off the bench whatsoever. He's one of the few guys that can score, but there are other options. He's shooting 25% from the three-point line. I know he started out the year shooting poorly, but it has to be better than just having two and three game stretches of shooting three out of five, yeah. two out of five, two out of four. And then you have a stretch where you shoot 0 for 15. That's what has happened consistently throughout his career. I love when Trey Thomas gets hot. He changes the game. It's the definition of a spark plug. But you can't be a spark plug that only provides it through shooting when you're not shooting consistently. Mm-hmm. And if he can come out and actually shoot relatively consistently, because it seems like he hits shots and he's going to hit them if he's on. And if he's wide open, it doesn't seem to matter because he'll miss the wide open kickout look that has to be knocked down. Guys in the past, Brad Tinsley, John Jenkins, even Jeff Taylor, Lance Goulborn even, guys like that were knocked down if you left them wide open with no one around them. And Vanderbilt really outside of Miles Studi, who even struggles with inconsistency, they really have zero guys that I see take a jumper that's wide open and think that's going in. Even Scottie Pippen is very inconsistent. He's shooting 31% from the three-point line. None of these guys are shooting well except Miles Studi and, and guys that have taken shots. Miles Studi, Stack, I know you may have an issue with his defense. Right now, the trade-off is you have to trade off some defense for a little bit of offense because this team just doesn't have a lot of scoring once you take away Pippen and take away Jordan Wright. Who is the go-to guy? Who yeah. is the one that's going to create the offense? I don't know the answer to that question outside of those two guys. Yeah, and well, Trey Thomas, I think, is the type of player. I don't know if you saw this during your playing days at Mount Juliet. I, I know I did, you know, throughout my time playing basketball. But there are certain types of shooters that they shoot the ball better when there's a hand in their face. And it feels like Thomas. You have to might, think about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it feels like Thomas is that type of player where there's a guy kind of closing in on him. The guy, this is he, where I say the guy can shoot. I say he's not shooting. I, I'll watch him in warm-ups hit 10 in a row. He can shoot. I've never questioned that. Yeah, but yeah. Is, no. the, is he shooting well enough to make the trade-off that you make when you have five foot 11, five foot 10 Trey Thomas? Is the trade-off in defense, athleticism, playmaking ability towards the basket worth it compared to a guy like Shane Dizoni at six foot five? That is where I That's have the, the question. question of, yeah. is should the minutes be flipped where Dizoni's really the sixth, seventh guy off the bench and Thomas is more that eighth, ninth guy? That's yeah. where I have some questions yeah. with Stackhouse's rotation, but he's yeah. kind of hamstrung right now, yeah. honestly. Yeah, And if, if Trey Thomas was, was shooting the ball like Miles Studio is right now, Thomas would be, he'd be that sixth, seventh guy. So, I mean, it, it all revolves around. Well, he around, is. He, he's it, playing it, those it, I mean, he is. Yeah, he is right now. But, it, I mean, it all revolves around him shooting the ball. I do want to say on this rotation, Billy, before <laughs> we move on, I'm sorry. I've got the percentages up. So, his most frequently used lineups the past five games. I actually found this. This is oh, pretty here, interesting. Here it is. Here it is. So, so, the most commonly used lineup, and this is – the last five games this is before it seems that he's kind of shifted this with Chapman coming back for the last three is 11.3% of the time is Pippen, Lawrence, Wright, Studi, QMB. Um, 8.8%, which this one is the one that I think will be the main lineup throughout the rest of the season is that same lineup, just Chapman in for Lawrence. And then the third most common lineup at 5.6% and none of the others are used more than 4% of the time. The third most common lineup, which is kind of surprising has been Trey Thomas, Scotty Pippen, Jordan Wright, Jermaine Mann, and Taryn Frank. 
That's wow. been the third most common combination of players. So that's um, right there, those three lineups I just named off in the last five games have been 25% um, of the minutes you wow. see on the court. So yeah, that, I, that individual combination of those guys. Yeah, I think that second one you mentioned with Chapman in there, that's going to be what it looks like going forward. And then when Robin steps in, he will take Clinton, Quentin Laura Brown's spot. But will Miles Studi, I mean, he could be – we talked about X factors at the beginning of the season. I think he's that X factor right now with the way he played against BYU – I mean that he had a rebound and then a putback dunk, uh, and and he just he kind of flexed on, on on BYU a little bit. That that's kind of that physical play that I think Stackhouse wants to get out of him. And then he knocked down a three. So I think Studi will could could start evolving into that that X factor. We know what we're going to get typically from Pippen, Jordan Wright. Who knows? But I think if Miles Studi can play like that, especially down low, man, I I really think this team can look different. So. Uh, who knows? We'll see. Uh, it'll be January 4th, if I'm not mistaken, against Arkansas uh, down in Fayetteville. Well, uh, sticking with basketball, just a little note here. Peyton Daniels actually landed at Stephen F. Austin. Um, so that's kind of just a, a quick note. And and I mean, it, it feels pretty suitable for him. I mean, that's another that's a D1 program, if I'm not mistaken. That's still weird. That's still weird to me. I, I still that's there's more to that story. There's more going yeah. on. It wasn't like Daniels was getting no minutes. Yeah, that's that's where it's he, weird he to me playing. is he was playing. Yeah. He was playing early on a thin team. It, there, yeah. There's more to that story. I, mean, I don't know what it there is, and we don't have any inside info, but there's something else going yeah. on here. We may have to find a source there, but I don't know if it's worth it. Yeah. But, uh, but Peyton Daniels <laughs> uh, did land in Boston. Uh, but Will, let's let's turn our attention to the gridiron. And we're going to touch on a, f- a couple things here that I, I mean, they don't really involve what has happened on the field. Uh, other than really Ken Seals, he will return. And I think both of us and a lot of other people were surprised. This isn't anything against the guy. Uh, you know, we wish the best again uh, for Ken Seals and, and, and in his future at Vanderbilt. Uh, but I was surprised. I was surprised to see this. The The quarterback room will j- just got a little bit more interesting next year. Now you got, I think, I mean, I hate, you know, it's weird saying this, but I think Ken Seals is the number one guy, Mike Wright, and then A.J. Swan. I'm guessing that's how it goes. I mean, that's all speculation. Uh, But with Ken Seals coming back, you got to believe. I mean, Mike Wright, the way he played kind of in in a couple games later in that season, you know, you got to believe him and Seals maybe a little bit closer to even. But, man, Seals coming back, that that kind of – that made the room a little bit interesting. Clark Lee's a smart guy. And this is what I'm going to say. I, I don't know what I, – I don't have – we haven't talked to Clark Lee. We haven't talked to anyone in the staff. We haven't talked to Robbie Weinstein yet about his his whatever uh, Robert Seals, Ken's father, told him. The one thing I can say is I would be shocked if Ken Seals is the first or the second guy that comes out and takes snaps behind center as a starting quarterback. Um, Clark Lee's very, he's smart. He understands the perceptions. He understands the risks you're taking by playing certain guys. It's why he went with Ken Seals to start out the season, because that was the, that was the option that if you come out and lose games with Ken Seals at quarterback, the average fan is going to say, okay, well, you made the decision that, that made sense from, from what you've seen. And you saw Ken Seals last season. He did not play well. The offense did not do anything. Mike Wright came out. He didn't necessarily play great, but the offense moved the ball quite a bit more. And I think it's fair to say that if Mike Wright had been quarterback, some of these games that were blowouts and or losses may have shifted, whether they were closer or they actually won them, that's up in the air. But you can't come out with Ken Seals as your starting quarterback week one for the third season 
after going 0-9 and 2-10. and You can't have him roll out as the starting quarterback for the third straight season. It's awful optics. And therefore, it is not going to happen. I don't care what he shows in spring. I don't care what he shows in summer. I don't care what sound bites they put out. I would bet a lot of money Conceals will not be the starting quarterback in week one this fall. It will either be Mike Wright or they're going to go fresh and they're going to go with freshman quarterback A.J. Swan and build for the future. I don't see where Conceals fits into this quarterback room because you have Reese Mooney coming in in the 2023 class. But that quarterback room is going to be awfully crowded with Drew Dickey, A.J. Swan, Mike Wright, and Conceals. That's a lot of quarterbacks that have zero proven on the field almost and all maybe in in competition for that job, even though I say that, that I would be shocked if it was Seals. You know, you never know with that that room, absolutely no proven talent in there. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to go come out and say, you know, I I think Mike Wright's going to be the guy or I think Seals is going to be the guy, but I would, I'm more on the lines of of agreeing with you. You know, I'm, I'm, it's yeah, a big risk are, if Clark comes out. If Clark comes out and puts Seals out there, that is a much bigger risk than coming out and putting either Swan or Wright. Because I think if you put out Wright, everybody can say, well, he played well at the end of, year, end of the year last year. So you're trying to build. And if you put out A.J. Swan, if you struggle, you say, okay, they're trying to build for the future with a true freshman quarterback. You put out Seals and he struggles, you're going to say, have you not, have you learned nothing from the last yeah. from last season? Do you learn nothing from watching Derek Mason's game tape? I just think that there is – it's too big of a risk unless Ken Seals comes out and looks like he's brought his game threefold, fourfold what it was yeah. this, this beginning of last season. I'd just be really surprised. Yeah, if my if my life depended on it, I'd say Mike Wright trots out there uh, against Hawaii, um, and then who knows, you know, who else would go in after that. Uh, but it's going to be interesting, Will. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to kind of track and kind of the quarterback update. I'd love to talk to Ken about uh, kind of his reasoning. I, I know he, he will never release his the true reason for coming back, but – Boy, that that's uh, that was a surprise. Well, the true reason may be that he's like a year away from graduating, and then he, he can just he can still degree. transfer, and he can just get that Vandy degree, get the best of both worlds, yeah. get out early in three, three and a half, three and a half years, and then transfer and still have two, yeah. three years of eligibility yeah. left. So I that think, yeah. that seems like a pretty smart move from. Uh, from oh there. yeah, yeah, and I think that's that he's the type of guy that would do that, come back for the you know stay for the degree. I'm not saying you know he's not going to play at all next year, but it's you know it's more along the lines of of what lines up for his future. But Will, that, that's, that was something that surprised me. So uh, again, we'll, we'll, we'll keep track of that, but Will, let's move on to one of our last topics here. Um, but uh, the team out East is practicing at Vanderbilt stadium for the music city bowl coming up on Thursday. I think it is uh, against Purdue. Um, but Will, I, what I want to kind of get to, yes, they're practicing at Vanderbilt stadium. Tennessee fans have, have seemed to, you know, kind of poke fun at Vanderbilt because of that. And, and you know, they, they have gotten a kick out of it. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, I mean, the SEC team in the Music City Bowl has practiced at Vanderbilt Stadium in the past three, four years, maybe longer. I mean, that, that's the way it's been. Now, I, I still think um, I, I was baffled by the decision to actually let Tennessee come in and practice. We'll, we can talk further about that. But, well, I think this is kind of a deeper issue. We saw Tennessee come out and tweet, uh, Nashville's team is here, or, you know, something like that in a tweet. And But, well, I think the reason they do that is because of what Vanderbilt has done on the field in the past 10 years. I mean, what, what they've done on the gridiron against Tennessee has shifted the pendulum. And, and, and we tweeted this out from our account. Um, but in regards to the pendulum, I, I'm talking about the way Tennessee fans perceive Vanderbilt as a football program, not, not you know, an athletic department, but football-wise. And, and, Will, the bottom line is they hate Vandy. 
they they hate Vandy more than they ever have. And it's mostly because of what Shermer did to them three straight years. And heck, even Jawan Williams being three and oh and, and Tennessee, you know, that that doesn't happen. That that never happens. And and who would have I mean, I think in the last decade we weren't surprised that that did happen. But man, I mean, there's a group of players, Will, that finished their careers at Vandy dominating Tennessee. And they can say that, and they'll be able to live to say that. And they'll be able to tell their grandkids that, hey, I went 3-0 and against Tennessee, or 3-1, and or, and, and, you know, we, we dominated Tennessee. And, and, and Clark Lee right now, he's trying to get back to that. Well, how long that takes, who knows. But the past decade, Will, Tennessee, five bowl games. Vandy, five bowl games. And before the Tennessee-Vandy game this year, the, that series was 5-5. Five and five. So I, I think this has pointed to – Tennessee and their hatred for Vanderbilt right now. I mean, we we didn't 10, 12 years ago, you you were not seeing the same amount. Tennessee, Vanderbilt was not on Tennessee's radar. They were worried about beating Florida, beating Georgia, and, and wanting to to stomp on the field of those teams. But I think this kind of revolves more around well, how far Tennessee has stooped down. And, and you know, I'm not I I I for for Vandy fans, this is more along the lines of hey. You know, you guys want this to be a rivalry. You want Tennessee to 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 you know think of you as a relevant uh, football team and a competent program. That's what they're doing. I mean, they are trashing you. They're putting garbage on your on your name. And you know, Vandy fans are pissed. I think they have good reason to be. But I mean, that's what this rivalry is all about. You know, this is like Derek Mason. He he embraced it. He said, "Let's ride." And, and will I, quite frankly, I love this. I love the heat that this rivalry has, has began to take on, and I don't think it's going to stop. I mean, ten, Tennessee fans look at this in the last decade. They say Vanderbilt has beaten us, you know, and, and so I I think, Will, it's interesting to look at how that pendulum has kind of shifted in these teams. I'm not saying they're even right now, but Tennessee and Vanderbilt are closer than they've ever been. I, I know some people in the 70s, 80s, 90s may disagree with that, but right now Tennessee Vandy football are closer than they've ever been. And boy, I, I love it. I, I love the heat that's that's uh, that's going on right now. So, you know, yes, they're practicing at Vanderbilt Stadium, and Tennessee fans apparently love that. And it's 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 pretty funny to actually track. But man, it's 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 heating up, and I'm I'm kind of surprised the amount of hatred that Tennessee has for Vandy right now. Yeah, I've got a couple a couple things on this. I always have to be careful when I talk about the the Tennessee Vanderbilt rivalry because. A lot of my friends are Tennessee fans. Most of them are. And it's like growing up, it's a very weird, nuanced rivalry. It's very, very unique. It's almost similar to an even lesser extent to kind of how the Georgia Tech-Georgia rivalry right. was or is, um, even though I think Vanderbilt-Tennessee has been a little bit more even in recent years. And it, they're within the conference, so it's it's a little bit different. But Tennessee does view Vanderbilt as the little brother. I hate to tell you, Commodore fans, Tennessee does not view themselves on the same level as, as Vanderbilt football. They do not. And historically, they would be correct to not view Vanderbilt as the same level as them. What, what Vanderbilt has done and why Tennessee fans have this new hatred for Vanderbilt and constantly uh, talking garbage on them and, and taking pot shots at them when they can yeah. at any moment is Tennessee sees that they are unbelievably closer to Vanderbilt and the and where they are right now than they are to the Georgia and the Bama. They they are much closer and have been for the past 15 years. They have been unbelievably closer to Vanderbilt and or even with Vanderbilt so much further down to being the worst team in the SEC closeness than they are to being the top team in the SEC. And I think that scares Tennessee fans. But I have one question. 
I know this is a normal thing that teams do. I would have just said no. I mean, here's the thing. You have to take... To Tennessee coming where in Vanderbilt, Where Vanderbilt has struggled in the past is they are very ignorant of optics. And they are very ignorant of how the outside world tone views deaf. things. And how, and how they are very tone deaf to how... And especially in the social media era, they are even more tone deaf. And that is the one thing that I don't think I've seen a great improvement from Candace Story Lee is the tone deafness of this athletic department and the ripple effects that every decision that they make has and the timing of everything. You say no, you don't let them go practice. And if you do allow them to practice, they do it in your indoor practice facility. They don't do it on the field. I know it's a tradition. I don't care because now you're going to have a bunch of videos and a bunch of pictures of Tennessee practicing on Vanderbilt's field, preparing for a bowl game when, of course, Vanderbilt's not preparing for a bowl game. But I have one thing that I just kept seeing Vanderbilt fans say or Tennessee fans say and say, well, yeah, but Tennessee would do the same. And I was like, okay, yeah, Tennessee's going to do the same and let Vanderbilt practice in the bowl game. The next one that's hosted in Knoxville, yeah. Tennessee. Like, yeah, I'll the next this, time Tennessee, well, uh, well, uh, when I'll Tennessee say, hosts a bowl game, dude. I'll, I'll say this. Tennessee fans may riot if Vanderbilt ever practices on their field. That would never happen. But say the Music City Bowl was in that and it was in Knoxville. Vandy, there would be a dead Vanderbilt player. Uh, like there would be. There would well, be well, I, can t I can tell you, I will also, the next time that Knoxville hosts a bowl game, when I attend the bowl game that's hosted in Knoxville, also stop by the Fantasyland shop and buy a unicorn because there's <laughs> the same chance that that is going to be there as Knoxville hosting a bowl game. Um, and there's a better chance of hell freezing over before that happens because there's no chance that a bowl game is going to be hosted in that garbage city. But, uh, the uh, only worst city that I know hosts a bowl game is probably Shreveport. Um, that's probably the only city that that would be below where Knoxville is. Noted, that is not my favorite city, regardless big, of the university located in it. Noted big Knoxville guy, Will Byram. That, that's that's what yeah. I got out of that. But Will, I like cities of, that are basically just like the worse, dirtier, cheaper, shittier version of like other cities in dirty, states. Those dirty Knox, baby, dirty Knox. But dirty, uh, nasty but Will, Knox. so but with some of the tweets, there were some interesting tweets that came out. Some reporters. This is from Ben McKee, a Tennessee reporter. I know you saw this. He said, Tennessee senior D-lineman Matthew Butler said he thinks it's hilarious that Tennessee is practicing in Vanderbilt this week in preparation for the Music City Bowl, and there's nothing Vanderbilt can do about it. He said he's rubbed his foot into the ground a little harder here and there. And, uh, of course, you know, you saw some other things, but this was a response from Greg Arias. Uh, I love he, that. He was a <laughs> – it's great. Uh, he was a former – he used to write for the Tennessean, but he said, in quote, as a quote tweet of this, herein lies the prob part of the problem with the current state of Tennessee football. There was a time when they would stomp on the logos of Florida, Georgia, and Bama. Now they're just happy to be in a bowl game in Nashville and stomping on the Vandy logo during practice. So I, I really do think there's some truth to that, Will. Now, I don't, you know, I, I don't think that's something Vanderbilt fans should come back at with. Um, you know, I mean, if you want this rivalry to be a thing, don't don't say, hey, why are you stomping our logo? I mean, you should say, hey, I mean, they're acknowledging you. The, the, the fact that this is even a rivalry and, and Matthew Butler coming out and saying, I, I thoroughly enjoy stomping on Vanderbilt's field. I mean, that, that's everybody knows. Material. And this is this is this is the thing with rivalries in college sports that are like so hey. unique is is they are so petty a the teams you actually have a disdain, a dislike for that team and their fans during but also both sides have this weird knowing and understanding that when the two main rivals in that state in the power five conferences are both good in whatever sport it is, it makes the other one 
more fun to watch and it draws more eyes onto that state and it makes the whole thing more fun like in baseball and basketball in years in the past you both have this understanding like you both want each other to not do well and you and you want to be better than the opponent but in baseball you saw it it is more fun on both sides when both of those teams in the state of tennessee are competing at a high level it's more fun when shane foster and chris lofton were going at it back in the day it's more fun when Josh Dobbs was going up against Kyle Shermer and Kamara and Vaughn. And that, it was more fun. And that that's where it's this weird thing is I, I don't even dislike the thing from the Tennessee player saying that because I think it, getting back to that point, that's just more gasoline to the fire, mm-hmm. build a little bit of bulletin board material, just like don't allow this to happen again. Go to a bowl game, practice in our in our own damn stadium. I think this is honestly just the time that's like there's nothing going on really. Yeah. It like until the until the college football playoff games on New Year's Eve. Yeah. And right now we're just trying to fill time in the Tennessee, yeah. and they've got to write articles, and that's that's about that's about the only cool connection they can make to this game because Purdue Tennessee is a pretty boring matchup, especially with the guys Purdue sitting out. Yeah, yeah, that's not the most electric uh, matchup <laughs> no. there in, in bowl season. But the irony will that the kind of the petty irony is the fact that Adam Sparks wrote one of those articles um, about Tennessee players. He's in a weird spot, man. Yeah. He's, he's in an odd spot. We got we to gotta get Adam on and just kind of pick his brain yeah. a little bit. See, uh, I mean, because we talked about before, he's he's covering Tennessee from a Vandy perspective. He's coming off covering Vandy. So that's that's, that's been kind of cool to see. But, but yeah, well, I just kind of wanted to get that out there and, and Vanderbilt fans and, and kind of from their perspective, I think a lot of Vandy fans should be happy. And uh, about this and kind of, okay, let's go. And, and a lot of this is on Clark Lee and the team. I mean, they, now you've got bulletin board material. Now, whether he's going to use this or not, who knows? I, I kind of doubt it. Clark Lee doesn't seem like a bulletin board kind of guy, but that's no. just me. He seems the he seems to ignore the outside noise kind of guy. He seems more like an army sergeant type of guy. He seems like the Bill Belichick, the Bill Belichick live in your own bubble and yeah. get hypnotized by your own process type of <laughs> type of coach. That's more that's more tarp to Clark Lee style, but uh, but yeah, so Tennessee Purdue coming up, and uh, yeah, I guess they have one more day at, at Vanderbilt Stadium. Maybe we should go down there and check it out. Uh, maybe get some, some quotes, uh, but we'll but real quick here to end it out. Um, I know we got coach Ron Bargatze coming up. We're going to talk hoops with him, um, but new year's resolutions, of course, uh, new year's Eve coming up. Uh, that'll be new year's day on Saturday. Uh, I know I have one down on the script here, but I'm kind of coming from Vandy uh, fans perspective here. I think a lot of fans would agree with me for me. Will it's Jerry Stackhouse to beat Tennessee at home and the Vandy boys to sweep Tennessee in Nashville. And I think there's even more heat on the Tennessee rivalry, not only with football, but also basketball and baseball and the three major sports and Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt, Tennessee, that's going to be a big series at the Hawk coming up next, uh, next year in 2022. But for me, Will, I think a lot of fans would agree Stackhouse to beat Tennessee and Vandy baseball to, to sweep Tennessee at home. I think that would be a pretty damn good uh, resolution for a lot of fans, I think. Yeah, I think my resolution is going to be the same exact thing that we talked about before the basketball season. And that's going to be my New Year's resolution for Vanderbilt basketball and Vanderbilt athletics in general is going to be one simple thing. And that is not playing in the opening night game of the SEC tournament. I cannot describe to you how big of a step forward that would be for this team. That would be massive. And and you can't go from being 13th, 14th, 14th really in the conference and jump up to 7th. 
just taking that step on a team that's had injury issues, has depth issues, has shooting woes, and just being able to take a big step forward, then bring in the class. That's where the Garland injury, I don't think, got enough attention, is you got all this national media. And I remember saying before the season ever started, this has to work out, and these these Vanderbilt players have to perform well, and the team has to do well, or it's going to set Vanderbilt back tremendously. Because you're going to have all these eyes, and they're going to come out and fail, and then it's going to be like, okay, I'm not going to go there if I'm a four or five star because they just went there to die. But now, now they finally are kind of they they've bottomed out. They you've seen as bad as it's going to get. Now we're on the uptick, and that's what that would represent. Even though a lot of this team is not going to carry over, you're not going to have a, the main scores likely carry over into next season and be the be the main scores next year. But what you are going to have is some type of upward arching momentum that you really haven't seen in any sport in the last three years outside of baseball, of course, which yeah. is always seeming, yeah. seeming yeah. to be up there you, in the momentum. Got, but you've got replacements you coming to, in. You have to end the season on a high note. You've got talent coming in. End the season on a high note. I know that sounds dumb because it's going to be such a different team coming in next year. But just any type of momentum going into the offseason, man, it's amazing what that can do. Hope can do for a roster that really hasn't seen a lot of hope recently. Yeah, I'm with you. And and talk about ending the season on a high note. They ended 2021 on a pretty damn high note. And, you know, they could have capped it off with a, a championship uh, over Stanford. Of course, Stanford, uh, they they, uh, they they went out of that one. But, Will, I mean, they ended they ended 2021 on a pretty high note. And, and so carrying that over, I agree with you. I mean, that's huge. So, uh, well, we're going to talk. I didn't more. hear that. I didn't hear the accusations of stack of stack house, like making them test and everything yeah. like you saw against Tim Corbin at the beginning of all that. That's yeah, still that one of the craziest. All, that was that's still Tim, one of the craziest that was all times. Tim Corbin's fault, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Tim Corbin made him test. That's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> and he didn't make his players test. I like, want to go back and like now once all the craziness and all these guys have been pulled out of games and you've seen it across all these leagues, I want to go back and find some of those tweets. Because there were some absurd tweets at that time. Because the precedent has been set now. NC so like, they're going to look even more one. absurd because they're... that was such a unique situation. But it would be pretty pretty funny to go back and read some of the takes that uh, North Carolina uh, State fans have. Hopefully, hopefully they have learned their lesson. And uh, <laughs> the irony of it, though, is they're not playing their bowl game either. So mm-hmm. the Wolfpack fans have had a rough go of it. Uh, here in, the, in 2021, they, they're probably set for a good 2022. But, Will, coming up, we got Coach Ron Bargatze, former Vanderbilt basketball assistant coach. He coached under three different head coaches. Will, this was fun. He kind of he kind of took us down memory lane, and uh, he actually has a another big idea for a, for a podcast, kind of a chronological um, idea of how the – the future of Vanderbilt basketball was shaped by basically one athletic director. So uh, he touches on that at the end. He also touches on Darius Garland. So, well, it's always good to get a guy like him on it and going down memory lane again. The recollection he has it's of un- it's, like it's players unreal. and years. I'm like, I can't, I'm 24 and I can't remember. Like if you told me to do that off of any bass, anything in my life, there's no way that I could remember it. So I'm always impressed that he can like remember names and years. And I'm like, yeah, you know, that guy was number four. And you're like, dude, that was four years ago. And I'm like, <laughs> no, my bad. I'm like, There's no way, but it's pretty amazing. He just, he just goes from talking about the guys on the court today. And then he's like, and you know who he reminds me of back in 73. Yeah, back and I'm like, in how in the world that was 40 years ago. And you were, <laughs> and he's like recalling things. He's like, yeah, and then he had a layup and passed it out to the wing over there with 9.27. And I'm like, good God, like I'm, I'm impressed. But yeah, you it was an it. awesome interview and some stuff you don't hear about a lot. I really, I said it in the podcast, I think that's kind of the dead 
era of history of Vanderbilt is yeah. kind of the 60s, the late mid to late 60s through the early 2000s, late 90s. That's kind of the era because it was so unsuccessful. And it was really the downfall of Vanderbilt athletics overall because the football program deteriorated pretty severely in that time. I think basketball has been kind of left out of that because they didn't necessarily face that same fate. And they kind of had an upward trajectory during that time. And I think they've been that that history part of that era has just been ignored yeah. completely because of how bad it was in the football field. So I, it, it would be pretty interesting to run with his idea and see what see what we get at the end, because he, yeah. he has some great stories. Yeah, he hasn't ignored it. He has not ignored that era. Mm-hmm. He shined a light on it for us. And, and he took us all the way back to the 60s, the 70s. Um, and Will Shane Foster, we know his numbers being retired. He actually mentioned <laughs> he had Will some Purdue. strong and feelings about he, that. He, I didn't know that was going to be Will such Purdue, a such an opinionated Matt Frege, and he he uh, he vouched for some of those guys. So uh, uh, we, it was a fun it was a fun conversation with Coach Ron Bargatze. We've got that coming up next here on the Door Report, powered by Alaco Fine Wood Floors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back into the Door Report. Alongside Will Byram, I'm Billy Derrick, and we are happy to now welcome into our interview portion of the podcast former Vanderbilt basketball assistant coach, Coach Ron Bargatze. They call him Coach B here in West End. He was an assistant under Roy Skinner, Wayne Dobbs, also Jan Van Bredikoff. So he, he saw three different coaching staffs uh, during his time on West End. Coach, how you doing? Thanks for taking the time. Uh, doing great. I'm not sure I didn't learn more on, on my years on the radio with C.M. Newton and uh, Eddie Fogler and Jan Van Bredikoff and uh, Kevin Stalling. So a long history there. <laughs> a lot of good coaches. A lot of good coaches uh, come through West End. And, 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 of course, we'll be asking you questions about Coach Stackhouse this season. But I want to start real quick, kind of a broad question of this year's team. I know we had you when we had you on last time. We talked a lot about the, the, you know, the current state of Vanderbilt basketball and also what, can, what we can expect in the future. Uh, but how much of this year's team have you watched so far? I know we're not – we haven't gotten an SEC play yet, but how much of this year's team have you been able to catch? Well, I've seen uh, several games, uh, some in person, some on TV. Uh, I was really disappointed when the uh, Hawaii tournament was canceled because I thought it had a great chance to win that event, which would have been a nice feather in their hat. No doubt. Yeah, even though te- technically they did win it, it just didn't qu- feel quite as satisfying. Do you think they got to bring him the trophy, Billy? Do you think they I, they gave it to him? That's a good question. I I really hope so. That I, that's a that's a trophy case. Uh, that's a trophy case item for for Coach Stackhouse <laughs> and Vanderbilt. But but Coach, you, I want to talk to you about uh, Scotty Pippen Jr. and a guy that has kind of settled into his groove a little bit this season. He's averaging 18 points per game. Um, and he's he's the go-to guy for them this season. He's he's kind of settled in. How far do you think he can take this team? We've seen runs before with with guards. Now Kemba Walker may be a little bit of a different type of player than Scottie Pippen Jr. We saw what he did with UConn. But do you think any sort of momentum like that is possible with Scottie Pippen and this team, or is there just simply not enough enough around him? No, I, you know they need more scoring punch for sure, and. Uh, Anytime you're a point guard, and I, and I know that uh, Coach Stackhouse is 
using him some as an off guard and trying to get maybe limit uh, a lot of his energy that's putting the ball into play because when he puts it into play and gives the ball up, uh, people are really trying to keep the ball from coming back to him because, you know, he is, uh, to me, he represents more than half of the offensive output for the Commodores. Yeah. Not, not just in point, but in his effect on the game, uh, how much attention he's getting. Uh, it, it, he is a phenomenal player. And I, when he came in, I, I wasn't expecting much because I'm thinking Scotty Pippen Jr. I mean, what's the connection here? And I thought he's improved dramatically, you know, year to year. Yeah, year over year improvement, I think, is what we've wanted to see out of Stackhouse and the teams. And for the most part, barring some injuries, this is probably the best team just talent wise that Stackhouse has had. With that, some old problems from previous seasons have reared their ugly heads, and that's the scoring droughts. Now, they don't seem to be quite as extreme as last season, and you touched on that Scottie Pippen Jr. is probably 50% of this team's offense. Well, that's not necessarily a recipe for success as teams get better and scheme against him. Do you have anybody on this roster that you see being able to step into that second scoring role, or, or do you see more of the same where this team just kind of seems if Jordan Wright's having an off night, it's just whoever can maybe knock down a couple threes, whether that's Trey Thomas or Miles Studi or one of those guys. I see that second and third score come in by committee. And I, I, I can't tell you right now that I know, uh, I don't think you can count anybody getting you 13 to 15 points, which probably would be the number that would, with their uh, pace of play and the way they're built, uh, I, I just can't see anyone that I think would be a guy you can count on for that you know, mid-teens points on a on a night-to-night basis. Somebody's going to get 15 or 16 or 17. Somebody's going to get 12 or 13, but it's going to be a different person at a different time and depends on what the defense allows them to do. Coach, in the past with these Vanderbilt teams, we've seen scores, but but like you said, they, Vanderbilt right now, they need that, that not just that one other guy. They need two other guys, maybe even maybe multiple other guys uh, to, to be able to score the basketball. How important is it to have – at least three starters, maybe even four starters sometimes. Heck, you're seeing some teams nowadays in college basketball with five different players. All five starters can score the basketball effectively. So how much of an impact do you think that plays on a team with guys that that do have scores a lot uh, as opposed to a Vanderbilt team that, you know, has one, two, maybe three at certain points in the game? I'll see a lot of athleticism popping up here and there, but uh, not that good jump shooter that's going to, that you can count on. I, I, I just think that uh, there's a big void there, and I think that's going to hurt them when, the, when they get in conference play. Yeah. I wanted to go into defense here, but you just led into another question that I wanted to ask so perfectly, which is shooting in general across college basketball. And Vanderbilt's roster right now, they have Miles Studi shooting 41.5% and no one else shooting over 32% um, outside of Shane Dizoni, who just hasn't, hasn't really taken that many shots from, the three point line, from behind the three-point line. Is shooting a lost art, and how do we bring it back? Is it quality of shot? Is it just guys – valuing athleticism over shooting what what seems to be the problem because it it's tough to watch some of these college basketball games it is it's painful sometimes i mean uh, i i played at belmont and I'm, I'm a big fan of belmont i go to all their games and uh, know their personnel very well and and i've seen i've seen the rick bird model that casey alexander has done such a great job mm. continue with that without interruption and uh You've got to have 
smart guys and guys that can put it in the basket. If you've got smart shooters, you've got a chance to win on any level, all the way from junior pro all the way up to the NBA. No doubt. And coach, that, that starts with recruiting. You know, the, going back to Kevin Stallings, he recruited a certain type of player that was versatile and that not only knew how to put the ball on the floor, but could shoot the ball. Um, but now this is an indictment on Coach Stackhouse, but it feels like the type of mold that he's going for is just a pure athlete. Um, and, and, you know, he may not be bringing as many shooters. Now, next season, that'll change uh, with, with some more scoring. Um, but is, is that – can you tell on a team really quickly that oh, they're a bunch of athletes as opposed to this team is a polished team of scorers like a Belmont team. You know, they might not be the most athletic team, but they'll, they'll drop 80 on you in a heartbeat because they know how to put the ball on the floor but also uh, put the ball in the hoop. And so is that – you watching a basketball game, is that pretty easy for you to tell a team that, uh, that you know, that this team, they, they, may, they may struggle scoring the ball? Well, I tell you, with the shot clock as it is, and uh, with the, uh, the the way that the game, the rules have made the game uh, played nowadays, uh, Rick Bird really was ahead of his time because in, in the early '90s, and uh, and Rick and I have talked a lot over the years, and uh, you know he gets guys who played in uh, good programs where he was well coached in high school. He gets guys who are smart academically. And the guys can shoot the ball, and uh, you put a few athletes around three shooters, and you've got a good basketball team potentially. And that just seems to be a little bit different of a recipe than what than what Coach Jerry Stackhouse is going for now. Noah Shelby coming in next year is a sharpshooter, but I want to shift the focus. All this talk has been on the offensive side of the ball, where this team has kind of struggled. Where this team has been successful has been on the defensive end of the court and creating turnovers. You're seeing Stack kind of play a mixture of man uh, matchup zone, a little bit of more drop back zone, but the it seems for the most part this zone he's playing is really aggressive. What about this team has made them so effective? At causing turnovers uh, to opponents this season? I don't think there's any question that a Jerry Stackhouse team is going to play hard. They're going to play tough on defense. Uh, their, their spacing is good uh, offensively, too. I just I think they'll do some really nice things. But, you know, there comes a, a point in that 30-second clock that you've got to jump up and make a jump shot. And uh, so they they can close the gap with, with great defense and with offensive rebounding uh, here and there. Uh, keeping, you know, controlling the tempo of the game. But again, uh, you know, that scoreboard's up there for a reason. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about defensive basketball a lot, especially with this team. But, you know, I think, Coach, what, what we may have gotten away from, at least at Vanderbilt a little bit, is, is actually putting the ball in the hoop. And there have been some teams in the history that, that have been able to do that pretty effectively. But I want to go all the way back to the 70s, the F Troop. Uh, and this might, might be a surprise to you that, I, that I'm asking you about this, but the famed F Troop, Butch Fair, Joe Ford, and Jeff Fosnes. Will and I don't know a whole lot about these guys. I've heard a ton about them. I'm sure Will has heard about them as well but they became a famed part of Vanderbilt basketball history in the seventies. So what can you tell the younger generation of Vandy fans about this legendary trio that may not know uh, very much about them, but the impact that they had uh, in, in basketball and the sec, but also on West end. Well, in the class of 69 in high school, you get Compton, Van Bredikoff, Ligon and Fowler. Uh, all those guys, could shoot. all of them really had a lot of, feel for the game and then you come in two years later with the with the f troop with uh, ford fear and fosness 
and then you got Rod Freeman in there on the other hand, who's a great, you know, physical inside banger type guy. Ray Maddox was a good rebounder. You had Steve Turner in the early part of those years, but the whole DNA of Vandy basketball in the seventies was guys that could really, uh, interchange positions, you know, make jump shots, uh, smart players, always shooting more free throws than the opponents. And I can remember Dale Brown after a game uh, in Assembly Hall, uh, we shot 33 free throws and they shot zero in wow. the game. That, that was the most extreme example of that. And uh, this is about 10 minutes after the game. Dale Brown comes running back onto the court, holding the stat sheet in his hand. Look at this. Look at this. As, as you can see, Dale Brown now. You know, it's, it's the, the night that he and he and uh, and uh, uh, what's his name from uh, from uh, Tennessee when they had the big fracas uh, at the SEC tournament. Don't Carlos ask us. Bro- <laughs> Carlos Bro- yeah, I mean, uh, I saw that look in his eye that night at the tournament. I saw that neat that 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 look in his eye that night coming up there with that stat sheet in his hand. He wanted every person in the media to see what the free throw disparity was. And, uh, but, but, but those Vandy teams would really wear you down by controlling the basketball, limit the turnovers, uh, interchangeable positions. When Jan Berberikoff is your point guard on offense and, and guards the post player on defense, that's something that's kind of special. And then you come on the back of that group and you've got Tommy Springer and Charles Davis and Mark Elliott and Greg Fuller coming in in class of 76. So the 70s were full of guys who had one thing in common. They were smart, they could shoot the ball, and they were interchangeable and, and you know, they could play in all over the court. So the 70s were certainly a great time for Vandy basketball. No doubt. And, Will, I know there's a pocket of Vandy fans that will enjoy that little <laughs> bit from, from Coach B. I had to ask him about it. But, Coach, sticking with the history of Vanderbilt basketball, I love the history. I love looking back at kind of, you know, times that, that you were kind of thriving with the team, but also some, some other guys that had success. And, and the alumni is what um, are always important parts of, of men's basketball programs, college football programs, collegiate athletes, uh, collegiate – all, all levels of, of, of sports, really, the, the, the tradition that those players have uh, from past. So with the alums of Vanderbilt basketball, how would they and, and you yourself and, and kind of that fellowship of guys assess the state of the program? And, and because you talked about some of the success in the 70s, they had success in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Um, so the trajectory that it's taking, how would you kind of assess that as a whole from the fellowship of, of Vanderbilt basketball alums as a whole? Uh, that's a great question. And uh, I think one of the things that, you know, I started selling programs at Bandy basketball games in 1954, 55, 56, and th- during those teams. And uh, Jimmy French was one of my heroes, but he played at West High School all the way for Doc, state champions. Uh, and I was really interested in following that. And then he went to Bandy and uh, they had some, uh, Coach Skinner came in there with Bob, as Bob Polk's assistant. And uh, they really played a, a beautiful brand of basketball. And, and on into the 60s, when uh, Coach Skinner, you know, had Clyde Lee in the middle and a bunch of those bandy kind of players around him, boy, what a combination. And had it not been for a crazy ending of the game when Cassie Russell walked through the ball and it didn't get called in the Mid-East Regional. And only 16 teams were going to the tournament in those days. But 
but from that time on, there's always been a great fraternity of ex-players, current players, fans. It, it was extremely, uh, we, we had a reunion uh, four years ago, three years ago, now three and a half years ago. And uh, Bryce Drew is still here as the coach then, is going into his last year. And, and by the way, probably maybe the best player who would have ever played at Vanderbilt was the guy that was wearing the Vandy colors, wearing number 10, Darius Garland, mm. in one of the most freakish, terrible incidents I've ever seen. And uh, Eddie Fogler told me that year, uh, maybe a week after Darius got hurt and he was out for the year, he said there's not a player in college basketball who meant more to their team than Darius Garland did to Vandy, even as a freshman. And you're seeing what he's doing for the Cavaliers right now. Uh, he's got a chance to be an all-star this year. Yeah, I was at that game. I watched it happen live. I saw him go down. I saw him start limping back down the court. And I blame that moment as when it fully broke me as a full Vanderbilt fan. That was that was my moment where it broke me. There were plenty of other times that led up to that. Don't get me wrong. Temple football 2014, but that was the one. Um, and then I won a Roomba at the Vanderbilt game that I was at. So now I have that as a reminder of Darius Garland getting hurt every single time. Random, random story out there. But another player not bringing up near as painful of memories uh, that was recently recognized and his jersey was hung in the rafters of Memorial Gymnasium is Shane Foster. Um, and he, I was number 32 in middle school basketball because of Shane Foster. He's my favorite player growing up. Um, it, would you consider him probably the greatest player in the history of Vanderbilt uh, basketball? I know that's a loaded question. You watched guys going way back before and, and have more perspective than I certainly do. But um, who would you put, if not Shane Foster, who then would you place there at the top of the history of Vanderbilt basketball? Well, Shane had one of the most storybook finishes of at his career scoring the basketball. But in my opinion, that number 32 is dear to my heart in more ways than just Shane. Shane absolutely deserves that to be uh, his number to be retired. But in my opinion, the right thing to do is recognize Jan Van Bredekoff and Will Perdue and Shane Foster as, as story, story all-time best players of Andy because Jane, Shane Foster didn't go to the NCAA tournament or didn't have any success there. Right. Jan Van Bredekoff was player of the year, averaging 11 points a game, but you're talking about a guy who meant more to his team uh, there's no question Scotty Pippen Jr., to, in my opinion, is 50 to 60% of Vandy's output, not just in points scored, but he's the reason they get 50 to 60% of their points. Uh, Will Purdue came in and Coach C.M. Newton basically ran him off. Will had to pay his own way in summer school. Will came back in 98, and excuse me, 1988, uh, leads his team to Detroit, uh, the Silver Dome to play in the NCAA tournament, uh, which was a, an unbelievable year that Will had. But Will was player of the year. Jan was player of the year in the league. Uh, you know, basketball is a game of, te of team players and not, and not of individuals. And I, I love Shane Foster. Matter of fact, I would say he's probably the – he is doing more after basketball – than any player who ever played at Vandy in terms of being a community presence, what he's done. He's a wonderful person. He was a phenomenal player and deserves to have that number retired in his name. But I can't go along with not recognizing Purdue and Van Bredikoff. And then you've got Matt Fregey just a notch behind those guys. 
32 has been a pretty good number for Vandy. I was about to say, that's a lot of names there that shared that number 32, man. Here's what we need to do. We need to just put the number 32 on that jersey, but list those four names. Yeah, it'll be, like, it'll be like when you list SEC Player of the Year, they have that banner up. It'll just be the guys that have worn number 32, and it'll be a big list of all these successful Vanderbilt players. It's kind of a random number, too, to have out there. It's not like number one or number two. What do you think, Coach? <laughs> Remember, number one and two were – you couldn't wear those numbers back in the day. Oh yeah, but it, they were illegal numbers. But but I, I I think you're I think it's really a slap in the face to recognize only Shane and he deserves it. But there are other two guys who did, and this inability to look back and and you know retiring a number is a lifetime deal. And if you type lifetime event uh, lifetime deal, you got to think about what that number has meant to Vandy for a lot of years. And, uh, and I think he deserves it every, every step of the way, but not any more than those other two guys did. And, and, and I think Matt was a great player too, but I would put him slightly behind those other two, those, other, those three. Yeah, and you know, I don't, I don't know if that jersey idea is going to work or not. But there's got to be some other, there, there's got to be some other ways that that we go back and honor these guys because you know it seems like we lose sight of some of those players in, in the '70s, '80s, '90s that that had so much of an impact and and are kind of the foundation uh, of Vanderbilt basketball and and the success they're having today and that they're able to have. I mean, they helped build Memorial Gym. So, Coach, what are some of those other ways that that Stackhouse and Candace Lee and and, and can kind of look back at, and, and honor some of those guys. I know 32 will be retired with Shane Foster's name, but there's got to be some other ways to honor some of those guys that played, um, you know, the 70s and 80s. Well, one of the really great players, and and I think being a really quiet person and not really a, a rambunctious personality was Terry Compton, who starting in the eighth grade on his high school team, he was the leading scorer as an eighth grader on his high school team, Hart Memorial up in Horse Cave, Kentucky. And then Hart County High School came about. He was the leading scorer on all four teams who played grades 9 through 12. And then he came to Vandy, played on the freshman team, was the leading scorer there, and led the team in scoring his next three years. That's pretty phenomenal stuff right there. No doubt. That, that's that's pretty awesome. But, Coach, I, I want to go now to the, the, the landscape of the SEC. And, and Will and I have talked about uh, kind of the depth of, of the conference this season. We've talked about this for the past three, four, five years. I mean, it seems like every year it's getting a little bit better. Uh, so wh why do you think that is? I mean, you know, I'm sure you've been keeping up with the game a little bit here in the, the past four or five years, but why do you think the SEC has kind of amped up its game a little bit? And, and that's making it tougher for teams like Vanderbilt to, to continue that, that recruiting momentum, especially, you know, with what's going on with the program right now. Well, that, that's a, that's a great point. And, uh, you're looking at traditional football schools who have gotten into the basketball business big time. Uh, when Nate Oates came in there, he kind of, uh, Sam Newton put Alabama basketball on the map. Wimp Sanderson continued that tradition. Uh, Nate Oates came in there and, and, uh, and he's got, I, I, I kind of like the way he does business. He's a, he's a really good coach. Their team is not going to win the NCAA tournament, but they're a tough out anytime you play them. And uh, back in the – until CM came into Alabama, uh, Alabama basketball was not much to write home about. And then you got uh, Ole Miss there now, and, and Kermit Davis is there. And, but they had some – they've had some nice years. 
Mississippi State has certainly had their day in the sun all the way back to the 60s when uh, Joe Dan Gold and, and all those guys were playing for, uh, for 1963, you know, they had to sneak out of town at night to play in the NCAA tournament. And they eventually, they, unfortunately, they played Loyola of Chicago, who was the winner of the NCAA that year with two, mm. two national players leading the way. Wow. So uh, they, these, these traditional football schools now, I think, are, are treating basketball and putting it up there neck and neck and, and kind of look at, the, uh, at, at football and women's basketball and men's basketball. And, of course, the gold standard for anything Vanderbilt is Tim Corbin, and what he's done there is you know, no less than phenomenal. No doubt about it. And, and you just kind of led into my last question here before I let you go, Coach. And, and you talked about Tim Corbin. You, they also got Clark Lee, uh, of course, at the football uh, facilities there. They've got new big plans coming up. So uh, looking at the university, you know, from, from a broad perspective as a whole, Coach, uh, how would you describe, uh, you know, kind of the ride here in the past 10 years? There's been a lot of changes. Of course, we saw David Williams uh, be replaced with Candace Lee. We've seen a lot of movement within the staff and, and who, who's coming in here to coach. So uh, how would you kind of uh, look at the, the state of not just basketball, but Vanderbilt athletics as a whole from a, as, as a former coach, as a former basketball coach? Well, not to, to take issue with that, but uh, that what you just said. But remember, Candace Lee replaced Malcolm Turner. Right. Not, I, but, mm-hmm. I forgot uh, about yeah. Malcolm Turner. Forgot yeah, about. Come him. on, Billy. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'll take I, the blame for that. <laughs> in preparation for joining you guys tonight, I went back and uh, did myself a little chronological uh, chart here with starting with athletic directors and basketball coaches at Bandy. And uh, anytime you want to talk that chronology, I've done my homework today and I'm really, uh, we need to do a show on that sometime. And I will tell you one time, there was, there was one thing that happened in 1974 that was unbelievable. Vandy has a new athletic director, Clay Stapleton. Okay. Well, he came, he came in on the heels of 1973-74 school year when Vandy goes to the Peach Bowl with Steve Sloan. Vandy wins the SEC basketball championship, and Larry Schmidt-O wins the SEC baseball championship. And the new AD walked in there, and a meeting I'll never forget. He calls everybody into the back back room at McGugan Center, uh, kind of the lunch room or break room back there, and everybody stepped in there, and spirits were high. Everybody was excited. Vandy, I would say 73-74 year was the best overall year in the history of Vanderbilt athletics because how can three three top teams not you know not can do any better than that and this new athletic director told us that day basically there's a new sheriff in town we're going to start doing things right around here Uh and he he really caused a tailspin that uh, uh, only Paul Houlihan took it to a lower position and then uh, I won't even get into the we, how Vandy lost their market share in the early 2000s uh, with a sleep at the wheel athletic director. I am completely serious. We are trying to do more kind of content like that. And one of the things that me and Billy have actually talked about is the era of like the 70s to the mid, like 2005, 2006. 
the 60s, 60s, 70s to that time are so undercovered. And all that time, it's very difficult, that segment of Vanderbilt history, because it's kind of when they became a little bit less successful on the football field. Um, There's just not a lot, even Wikipedia, anything. So that would actually be interesting to kind of go in a like a three or four parts episodes, 30 minutes, an hour each, and we can go through and kind of run through that history. That would be awesome. But unfortunately, we're running out of time on the on on the recording here. Coach, really right, appreciate guys. it. We'll, we'll get we'll get that chronological episode in sometime soon. Uh, but next I, time you come I'll, on, I'll, okay. okay, absolutely. Next, next time you come on, we'll we'll be ready for that. Coach, thanks again for your time and, and have a good New Year. All right, thank you.